their nemesis. And Aaron Burr, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson uh, lament how Alexander Hamilton is fracturing the cabinet and always seems to get his way. And to make this point in the musical, they sing this. It must be nice. It must be nice to have Washington on your side. You see, they're, th they're lamenting that Alexander Hamilton has this great leader, the great general and now President Washington on his side. And who can stand against him when Washington is on his side? If you're a sports fan, you know what it's like to have a great player on your side. When uh, Lionel Messi uh, signed with uh, uh, Inter-Miami, even though he's not maybe the uh, player that he once was, there was a great rejoicing that this new player, Messi, was the great hope for their fans. And from the early results, I think they might be right. Um, having Messi on your side uh, certainly helps. And in the NFL, New York Jets fans think that they have finally have somebody on their side in, the quarter, in quarterback Aaron Rodgers who can help them get to the promised land. But we kind of all know, right, that feeling. It's nice to have somebody in a position of influence or power on your side, right? Maybe it's a boss or a teacher, someone who will stand up for you and protect you, this morning, we will see that the Lord is on the side of his people. The Lord is on our side. So let's read Esther 9, verses 1 through 19. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adder, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Azuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the stirrups and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed... I'm not going to read all of Haman's kids' names. The son, ten sons of Haman, the son of Hametha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your response? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, 
If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 20th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made the day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of glad- for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. This morning, as we come to your word, Lord God, texts like this can be kind of difficult. To hear of mass killing, to hear of a second request of another day. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, may we come to your text with open hearts and open minds. May we receive from your word all that you would have us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Dave Bindewald preached from Esther 8, verses 1 through 17. We know that Haman is no longer a threat, but the edict of the king is still very much there, and Esther finds herself safe, but her people are not. She seeks the protection of the Jews by going to the king and asking the king to reverse his edict. But as we've heard prior in our text, the edict of the king can't be reversed. And so the king gives his authority to Esther to write a new edict. And we saw last week there was a new leader, Esther, instead of Haman. A new edict, the people of God saved instead of destroyed. And a new response, joy instead of despair. This morning we pick up the story. We're just shy of nine months after what we saw last week. Uh, The original date of Haman's decree calling for the killing of the Jews throughout the kingdom has, has now come. And instead, with the new edict written by Mordecai and Esther, the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Instead of the enemies of the Jews destroying them, the Jews were able to destroy their enemies. Now, In one sense, we all like an underdog story, right? We all like it when the underdog wins, when the tables are turned. But in this instance, it's kind of hard to, we need to admit that it's kind of difficult to read of 75,000 people being put to death, plus 800 more in Susa. And as we think about this reality this morning, we must remember that this was an act of self-defense, And the number of people killed by the Jews were likely 
far fewer than the number that, of Jews who would have been killed in the original edict, annihilating an entire people group. And while that may be true, how do we understand this bloodshed, especially from our modern perspective? Well, let's review. Haman was going to kill all the Jews in exile, Esther 3. Haman was an Agite um, related to the ancient Amalekites. And many years before, King Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites. But he failed in his task and ultimately ruined his kingship. Why was Saul supposed to destroy the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites were those who opposed the people of God, Israel, shortly after the exodus from Egypt. And in the battle, as Moses holds up his staff and Joshua successfully defeats and routs the enemy, God makes a promise to Moses. He says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God's promise that he himself will intervene and destroy the enemy of God's people for their evil and their wickedness. Saul was supposed to fulfill the promise that God made with Moses, but he failed. So when the time comes for Haman's edict to be executed, God turned the circumstances completely around. The Jews defended themselves, killing thousands of their enemies, including the ten sons of Haman. And in keeping with the instruction that God gave to Saul through the prophet Samuel centuries prior, which Saul was told not to keep anything from the Amalekites, he was not to touch, to keep the plunder. The Jews throughout the Persian Empire, the text says over and over again, did not even lay hands on any of the plunder of their enemies. So the author of, of Esther is helping us make this connection to what had happened in the past in the history of God's people and redemptive history. So God, in his providence, uses Esther to accomplish what Saul didn't do centuries after Moses, right? Moses, centuries before Saul, God's promise to his people was finally fulfilled. We see from our text that God is capable of doing exactly what he says he will do even centuries after he says it. This episode highlights the powerfulness of God's word as it is realized in history, even through flawed and sometimes even evil people. Karen Job explains this further in her commentary, quote, in the book of Esther, the deliverance of the Jewish nation is connected to the same covenant that runs throughout the Old Testament. Yet neither Esther nor Mordecai are described as devout Jews, nor are they described as empowered by the Spirit of God. As far as we know from the story, both of them seem either ignorant of or indifferent to the covenant God had made with their ancestors. Neither are shown to be living out the implications of that covenant in their individual lives. Yet, it is through Esther and Mordecai that somehow God's covenant promise is fulfilled to the Jews scattered throughout the Persian Empire. 
We cannot even be sure from the text that Esther and Mordecai themselves were fully aware of being essential links in redemptive history. Right? There was nothing noble or admirable about the way this reversal of fortune occurred, as we read in our text. The hearts of the people are not said to be turned back to God. They continued seemingly in their political intrigue and manipulations. We don't quite know all the details, but the way that the author describes Mordecai and his rise in power, that people became afraid of him, that he was uh, one who had uh, grown in great authority, more powerful, how Esther seemingly asked the king of something that we had, there's no background given to why she would ask for another day for this to happen. It seems that they continued in their political intrigue and manipulations. And as both Christian and Jewish interpreters have agreed, this episode of Israel's history in Persia is not one of great morality and spiritual character. Yet God's promise could not be frustrated. This should give us today great comfort and hope. Whatever we think we are seeing or experiencing, maybe in our own personal lives or even in society and culture at large, God's plan and promise can't be frustrated. Right? Even our sin can't frustrate or stop God's promise to be fulfilled. There's nothing that we can do that would frustrate or stop God's ultimate plan for our lives. I've mentioned this before in our in our series, we often live and sometimes are told by other Christians, even Christian leaders, that we better not mess up because we will mess up God's plan. <laughs> That's ridiculous. If God is all sovereign, all powerful, if the God who created all things and holds all things together if his plan and promise can be thwarted by your mistake, he's not God. And he's not a God that any one of us should want to follow or to know. Whatever we think we are experiencing or seeing, God's promises can't be frustrated he has promised that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Whether we always see or experience it or not, his promise is true and will be fulfilled. Right? He, in our text, fulfills the promise that he made to Moses centuries before, protecting his people 
from those who would rise against them. Those who would seek to destroy, those who would seek to bring doubt and fear into his people's lives. We also see that the events of Esther begin a, a period of roughly 400 some years where we think of God as, quote, being silent, the intertestinal period. No prophets sent from God, no powerful miracles displaying God's power or might. And yet, if that's true, how do we find a much more devout Jewish people when the New Testament opens? What's interesting is that uh, Jewish Midrash, which is kind of like a commentary on, uh, on the Jewish Scripture, suggests that it's God's people really followed him because of the mighty miracles he had done instead of believing who he was or who he is. As miracles began to cease, Israel's heart wandered from other gods, no longer confident in their personal God, Yahweh, his power and might. But what's interesting is several commentators point out that when they experienced this great deliverance in 127 provinces around, spread across the world, this great deliverance of being brought from literally death to life, from having no protection to being able to protect themselves and even more than protect themselves, but find standing in society. When this happened, Jewish people finally begun, became, began to rest their faith on the Torah, on the Word of God, rather than on the miraculous displays of His power. And the story of Esther implies that what God's Word has decreed will happen, even without the great miracles that God had performed before. God is still at work even when we can't see Him at work. And this great deliverance here in Esther begins in the lives of the Jewish people, a reliance on the word of God in the lives of his people. And of course, we know that they still had difficulty in understanding exactly what God was communicating to them through his word. And so we see that God had sent his son, the word made flesh, to dwell among us, the living word to interpret the very word of God so that the people might know him and follow him in spirit and in truth. And in a way, we are kind of like, as I've mentioned over and over again, the Jews dispersed throughout the kingdom. Right? We are those who are living in a time where we, too, don't see and experience the miraculous, powerful, mighty acts of God. We have not experienced for ourselves, seen for ourselves, 
God in the flesh, Jesus. And yet, God has sent his son, the living word, to help us to know him and to follow him in spirit and in truth. And we continue to look to God's word rather than miraculous displays of God's power. And as we look to God's word, we are able and must interpret it in light of Jesus, the word made flesh. Because we can trust in the word of God, we are able to view all of life and history with the certainty of the unseen reality of God's presence and power. And finally, not only do we see that the people begin to rely more on God's word as we see throughout history and understand that we too can rely on God's word. Not only do we see that God is faithful to his promise as he gave to Moses that we see in our text, but we see that the Lord is on our side. Right? The Lord is on our side. If you remember, we opened our worship service this morning with Psalm 124, one of the Psalm of Ascents. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, right? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, we would be destroyed. We would be gone. We would be taken from the face of the earth. We'd be swept away by the torrents over us. We'd be taken away by those whose anger was kindled against us. But the Lord brought us out. We have escaped because of the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord is on our side, most centrally in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Right, that psalm of ascent, if it were not for the, for the Lord on our side, we would be swept away. We'd be overcome. Evil would have the upper hand. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has overcome. Jesus is the one who is on our side, our perfect warrior waged the battle for us. He is the one who has defeated all of our enemies. He waged that war on the cross, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And the Bible assures us, the very word of God, that the full expanse of human history, including the days in which we now live, is a part of God's redemptive plan. Jesus promised us, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. God is still working in this world. 
calling people into his kingdom, into his family, and bringing all of history to its appointed end, to the promise that he has made. One day, God's redemptive work will be completed when our divine warrior king returns and the whole world bows before him and all things are made right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your word, that you keep your word. Lord, even if, it, if we see it taking centuries to take place, Lord, you are faithful to your word. You have not left us. Lord, we thank you for your word and how we can trust it. Lord, we thank you that you are on our side. We're the right man not on our side. That right man is Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you and praise you. Help us to rest in the peace and the hope that you are indeed, or more importantly, we are on your side. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.